You're listening to sermon audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, if you turn to Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4, we're going to be in, uh, chat, uh, in verses 25 through 32. Uh, we were just in Ephesians last week in chapter 5. We're coming back to Ephesians 4 for uh, our next round of the One Another series today, which is uh, dealing with being kind and forgiving to one another. And so Ephesians 4, 25 through 32, as you're turning there, uh, we have a few more weeks left in this series, uh, uh, one more week after this and this month, and then I think three in November, and then we start that last Sunday in November with our Advent series, preparing us uh, to get ready for that season of the birth of Christ. And so, uh, just as a little sneak uh, peek, if you will, uh, our Advent series this year is going to be titled Christmas Presents, but not P-R-E-S-E-N-T-S, P-R-E-S-C-E-N-S-E. Presence. We're going to talk about what it means to be the presence of hope and peace and love and joy in the presence of Christ uh, to one another, to our community, to our world, and uh, the, the joy of having that presence even more so than any present that may be under a tree. So um, I'd ask you to begin going ahead and, and praying for that time, praying for that series, uh, begin thinking about people to invite uh, people will come traditionally at Easter and Christmas more than any other two times of the year. And uh, so this is an opportunity for you to engage family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, fellow students, uh, and the like to uh, uh, have them to come and hear God's word spoken. Ephesians four twenty-five through 32, if you want to follow along with me, beginning there at verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with someone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. We're actually going to begin today at verse 30, kind of in the middle there. We're going to come back and pick up some of those preceding verses in just a moment. But we're going to begin with verse 30 for our first point, and that is that we can make the Holy Spirit sad. It says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit, and the, to grieve means to be sad, to have sorrow, to be unhappy. Uh, it's the word that was used of the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, who, uh, when Jesus said, sell everything and give your possessions to the poor, it says he went away sad or sorrowful. It's that same word that is translated grieved here. It's the word that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9, uh, when he's speaking of the preceding letter that he wrote to the church at Corinth, dealing with some very serious issues at the church. 
And he says in chapter 7, verse 9 of 2 Corinthians, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. He says, I I rejoice that you were sorrowful. Not just that you were sorrowful, but that your sorrow turned into repentance from that sin. In 1 Thessalonians 4, that I use quite often at graveside services, where he talks about that joining with the Lord in the air. He says, I do not want you, Paul says, I do not want you to grieve as those without hope. And so this idea of grieving the Holy Spirit carries with it this understanding that it literally means to be made sad, to be made sorrowful. And so there's two important aspects for us here with Paul's command here in verse 30. The first is that we are the ones responsible for the Holy Spirit's grieving. Paul does not say the world is responsible for grieving the Holy Spirit. He does not say the sin of the world is responsible for grieving the Holy Spirit. He's he's pointing to the church and its actions or inactions or attitudes and so on and so forth as being capable of grieving the Holy Spirit. That's something really important for us to understand. That when the Holy Spirit is grieved in this way, it is because of us if we are doing these things that he's going to be talking about here in just a moment. The second really important aspect of this is this tells us and and solidifies the scriptural case that the Holy Spirit is a person. He's not an it. He's not a force. He's not some magical Star Wars-esque kind of thing that floats around the universe. He is a person. Now, we ought not to think of him as a person with a head and two arms and two legs and so forth because the Holy Spirit dwells inside of every believer. And I don't know about you all, but I don't have an extra body inside of me. Uh, There are particular times of year, one of which we're coming upon, that I sometimes look like I have an extra body inside of me between Thanksgiving and Christmas, but I don't have a body inside of me, but he has uh, these personal personhood qualities, attributes, and functions. And so he is described in the scriptures as a person, some of those qualities, some of those attributes throughout the scriptures. In John 14, 26, he's a teacher. In John 15, 26, he bears witness or gives testimony, testifies to who Jesus is. In Romans 8, 26 and 27, he prays. He intercedes for you and me in prayer when we don't know how to pray. In 1 Corinthians 12, he's a gift giver. In Acts 8, 29, he speaks. And so he has these personhood qualities, functions, characteristics. And so he's designed or described to be thought of as a person. Not an it, not a force, not a mystical sort of thing, but to think of him and to be described as a person. And so how do we grieve the Holy Spirit? There are some who believe that it's that phrase in verse 30 specifically connected to verse 29. I think upon studying, it's better understood to go all the way back to where we began in verse 25. How do we grieve the Holy Spirit? Verse 25 says this, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. We grieve the Holy Spirit when we lie to one another. We grieve the Holy Spirit when we deal in falsehoods with one another, when we are not truthful. 
We grieve the Holy Spirit in our anger. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin and do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give any opportunity to the devil. Some, some come back at that verse and say, well, yeah, but isn't righteous anger a thing? Yes, righteous anger is a thing. And we should be righteously angry about things in our world, situations in our, in our world. But I would say to you, even in that, we do not sin. The person who is righteously angry, for example, at abortion, who then goes and chooses to bomb an abortion clinic, has been sinful in their anger. So we are angry at things in the world, yes, but here in the context of the setting of chapter 4, he's talking about anger within the body of Christ. He's not talking about anger that's directed at things in the world. He's not talking about anger that's directed at sin. The, the, the whole context of chapter 4 and following is what does it look like for us to live together in a community of faith in the body of Christ. And so when we are angry with one another, we grieve him. We grieve him when we are dishonest and we steal. Um, that one probably looks a little weird or maybe out of place. But again, thinking contextually, thinking critically in terms of, of when Paul wrote this and in that time, um, apparently stealing was very commonplace in that day. And, and from, from masters to servants they stole in Titus chapter 2. When Paul's giving commands to Titus there, he, he says to the servants in verses 9 and 10, to them, as far as their relation to the masters, do not, do not pilfer, which is just a fancy word for stealing, right? Um, Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 sell some land, and they come to the disciples, and they say, we sold this land, and here's the money for it. And, and the disciples go, ah, but the Holy Spirit's told us you've held some back. You've stole. So stealing was apparently a very common thing in, in that time, and particularly even in that, uh, the, the community of the church. And so he says we grieve him when we steal. We grieve him when we don't watch our words. Look there again at verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. I think traditionally sort of... Uh, uh, on the surface level, we look at a phrase like corrupting words and we think cuss words or bad words. But the idea behind the word corrupting here is describing something that is useless for its purpose. It's the same word that is used, for example, in Matthew 7, 17. Jesus is using the metaphor of a tree and its fruit and bearing good fruit or bad fruit. And he says this, every healthy tree bears good fruit, and talking about the life of a believer, but the diseased or the corrupted tree bears bad fruit. In other words, the tree that is, that is diseased, the tree that is corrupted, the sinful lifestyle of the believer does not bear good fruit but bad fruit. And so, therefore, the tree does not fulfill its purpose. And so here, Paul, and he says, don't let any corrupting talk come out. He couples, with, couples it with this positive idea, only such as is good for building up. The idea is that we grieve the Holy Spirit when our words are useless for our purpose as believers in Christ. And so what happens when we grieve the Holy Spirit? The, the Bible doesn't say a lot about what happens as a result of this. We'll, we'll look at one example here in just a moment. But I can tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean we lose the Holy Spirit. If we look there again at verse 30, if you will. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. 
We don't lose the Holy Spirit of God. He stays with us. But in reading through various commentaries and books and, and resources through this week, uh, there were quite a few uh, persons who sort of gave an idea of what they believe happens when we grieve the Holy Spirit in our lives. And this is just a few of them that I read through this week. One is that our spiritual growth, our spiritual maturity is, is hindered. And that makes sense. If you, if you and I are grieving the Holy Spirit who is responsible for moving us to maturity, then it stands to reason that our maturity, our growth in Christ, will be hindered if we are grieving that Holy Spirit. We lose a sense of His presence. He does not leave us, but we lose a sense of His presence in our lives. We lose a sense of His joy. It stands to reason that if we grieve the Holy Spirit, that is to make Him sad, then we therefore do not sit or stand or live in the fullness of His joy because He's not joyful in those moments. And we lose a sense of His power in our lives when we grieve Him. Now, I said the Bible doesn't say a lot about what happens when we grieve the Holy Spirit, but I do want to give you one example from the Old Testament, Isaiah 63. In Isaiah 63, uh, they're recounting the steadfast love of the Lord and all that he's done for Israel, beginning back in verse 7 of Isaiah 63. And we get to verse 10, and it makes this statement. But they, talking about Israel, God's people, they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit, and therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. That is some heavy wording right there. That they rebelled against God, they grieved His Holy Spirit, and as a result of grieving His Holy Spirit, God actually turned against them. Now that's not something that a lot of people like to think about, but we know it to be true from the Scriptures. We know that the prophets, as example, continually told Israel, because of your sin, God's raising up the Assyrians. He's raising up the Babylonians. They're going to come against you. We know that there are places in Scripture where they had grieved God so much that sometimes he actually sent plagues upon his people. And it's not that, he, that, he's, that he's wrathful in that. It's not that he's, uh, you know, that he's a scorned individual who's uh, reacting out of a, some toddler rebellion. But out of his holiness, he moves against them when, he, when they grieve his Holy Spirit. From a New Testament position, Hebrews 12, 10, the writer of Hebrews says this, God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. Revelation 2, 4, in the letter to the church of Ephesus, Jesus says, you've lost your first love. I hold this against you. And if you don't reclaim it, What he states in that verse is, I will remove the lampstand from you. And what does the lampstand represent? It represents his presence and his power. And so when we grieve the Holy Spirit, we open ourselves up to a lack of his presence, a lack of his power, a lack of his working. I have heard and often even still hear today from people, why don't we see more? Why don't we see more baptisms? Why don't we see more healings? Why don't we see more people coming to Christ? Why don't we see what the New Testament church looked like? And I would say to you, submit to you, that a possible reason is that we're so busy grieving the Holy Spirit that we don't allow Him room for work. 
One of the commentaries on that Isaiah passage that I read said it this way. If our lives grieve his Holy Spirit, he won't support our stupidity. He says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Secondly, today, we are to put away and put off. Look at verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. We are to put away or we are to put off these things that grieve the Holy Spirit. That that put off, put on language is something that Paul uses quite frequently. In Colossians 3, 9, and 10, he talks about putting on the old self and putting on the new. In Romans 13, 14, he talks about putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. In your, in your Ephesians chapter there, if you're still looking there at chapter 4, uh, look, if you will, there at verse 20 through 24. He's talking about the church at Ephesus and consequently all who would read this letter for all of eternity. Realizing that their walk is important. He says, this is not the way you learned Christ, assuming you've heard about him or taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Assuming that you're taught to, verse 22, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so verse 31 is this idea again of putting away or putting off something that does not match who we are supposed to be now in Christ. And we're given this list of things to put away from. Now, before we get into the list, I want to share this with you. That little phrase of put away from is is this really interesting little phrase that was also used in just sort of everyday language to describe the lifting of the anchor from a ship, thereby allowing it to sail freely. And I think that is so neat. Because it's as if Paul is saying, when we, get, when we go through this list in just a moment, if you continue to hold on to these things, you may still be a ship, but you're not going anywhere. You're, you're just going to be floating in the waters wherever your anchor is, is held. But if you put away these things, if you lift that anchor, then suddenly you become a ship that begins to achieve its purpose. You begin to move in the kingdom of God. And so what are these things we're to lay away, put away? He says bitterness. One of the commentaries this week stated it this way. This is a person with a chip on both shoulders. Irritable, sour disposition, hostile. In short, just someone who is an unloving person. He says to put away wrath and anger. Those two are really coupled together. And again, not, that's not dealing with righteous wrath or righteous anger, but it's dealing with a person who is just continually in their life on a daily basis, a person who's violent, a person who uh, has a short fuse is what we might describe it. And in every situation they encounter, they're just ready to snap. Uh, we, we might describe him as a madman is the way we might describe him. He says to put off clamor or to put away clamor. That's not a word we use very often, most likely, but it's a word that describes a person who basically lacks self-control in the public arena. A person who's loud, who's boisterous, who's prone to just public outbursts. Um, I thought about it as a person who just loves to get in a shouting match. That's all they want to do. 
He says to put away slander, speak falsely of someone else, to be verbally abusive to them, to seek to discredit their character or their reputation through lies or gossip. And then he includes at the end of verse 31 and to includes this word called malice. And that's a particular word that just describes a mean-spirited person who has the desire to see someone else suffer. He or she needs to pay for what they did, for what they said, for what they caused. And it's a person who's unrelenting in that. Now, I, I, I'm going to read to you from Romans chapter 1 for just a moment. Because in Romans 1, Paul is talking about people. And he's talking about the coming wrath of God that's being poured out, that's even being poured out in Paul's day on people who reject him. And, and I want you to listen to this list that he goes through towards the end of Romans chapter 1, beginning verse 28. He says, Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. In other words, you want to walk this way? I'm going to let you walk this way, God says. In beginning verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, heartless and ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice these things deserve to die, not only do they practice them, but they give approval to others who practice them. Quite a few things that Paul lists in Ephesians 4 are listed through those passages at the end of Romans 1. And so it's important for us to understand, Paul's not just saying here, lay aside bitterness and anger and wrath and clamor and slander because it's just not a good fit for you. He's saying, Christian, lay aside those things, put away those things, because the unrighteous do this. Those who are not saved do this. That's the way they act with one another. It's not just that it's not a good look. It is, it is evidence, at least according to Romans 1, that a person is not even saved. And so, so long as we hold on to those things, we are portraying that kind of picture to others. Thirdly, then, so if we lay away these things or put away these things, what do we replace them with? Well, verse, uh, chapter 4, verses 32, uh, not so random acts of kindness is the way I put it in the bulletin. He says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I'll put it in the bulletin as not so random acts of kindness because this is not to just be random in our lives. This is to be intentional. This is to be intentional to lay aside these things, bitterness, wrath, anger, uh, clamor, slander, and all malice. And it's to intentionally do these things in verse 32 in their place. And he says, be kind to one another. This is a word that means loving and affectionate and sympathetic and friendly and gentle. And one of the really unique aspects of this is if you remember just from just a few moments ago when I talked about the corrupting language 
and how that word corrupt really meant that it was something that's not useful for its purpose. Here the word for kind signifies something that is useful for its purpose. And so the Christian who uses corrupting language along with the other things is not useful for the purpose of the kingdom of God. But the Christian who seeks to be kind intentionally to one another is a person who then begins to fulfill the purpose that they have for the kingdom of God. Another interesting aspect with this. When we were in Colossians 3, 13 a couple weeks ago, we were talking about bearing with one another. I read to you from Romans 2, verse 4, where Paul writes there, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Now, stated then that God's forbearance is essentially the same thing as us bearing with one another, that we are to bear with one another because God has been bearing with us leading us to salvation, leading us to repentance, leading us to continued repentance when we've needed it. So let me read verses, uh, verse 4 again from Romans 2. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Just as we are to bear with one another because God bears with us, we are to be kind with one another because God is kind towards us. And if we take Romans 2, 4 even a step further, we could make this application, I believe. Just as God's kindness is designed to lead us to repentance, so is our kindness to one another to lead others to repentance. Whether it's repentance of their their sin to follow Christ for the first time or repentance of their, their sin in their lives that they need to get rid of as a Christian or vice versa back to ourselves. We are to be kind to one another. He says we're to be kind to one another. We're to be tender-hearted, compassionate, quickly moved to love, pity, or sorrow. It is a deep and genuine affection for one another. Not surface level. Not Sunday morning level. Y- y'all get what I mean by that, right? Where everybody's good and happy on Sunday morning, and then by Tuesday afternoon, we're all in turmoil with one another. We're to be tender-hearted, compassionate with one another. Peter picks up on this in his writing in 1 Peter 3.8. Finally, all of you, he says, have a unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind, he says. There, there's, a, there's a call in our culture today. For Christians to be more tough, particularly among men. We need manly men. We need Jesus men. We need Christians who, yes, are willing to be tough and stand on the doctrines of the salvation and the teachings of salvation and what leads people to Christ and the understanding of repentance and forgiveness. And, but we don't need men or women or boys or girls or teenagers who want to quarrel and be divisive and want to stir up controversies. Matter of fact, Paul tells Timothy in his letter, among those Christians have nothing to do with them. Paul here does not say, get tough and rough. Paul here says, lay these things aside and become kind to one another, tenderhearted and compassionate. We would have a tough 
way to read from Scripture that Christians are supposed to have a hard edge to them, particularly to one another. And he closes verse 32 in this way. Be kind to one another, being tenderhearted, and forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven you. Unforgiveness among the family of God grieves the Holy Spirit of God because the Holy Spirit of God recognizes how much God has forgiven us through his Son. And when God's people are unforgiving, it leads to bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and all kinds of malice. Unless we want to seek to try to dismiss Paul's words here, let's listen to the words of Jesus himself. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells a, a parable in response to Peter. Peter says, how often will my brother sin against me and how many times do I need to forgive him? Seven times? Because in Peter's day and culture, to forgive somebody seven times meant you really went above and beyond. And Jesus answers in Matthew 18, verse 22, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. It's really not for Peter or any of us to go, oh, okay, so 490. So at the 491st opportunity, I don't have to forgive. It's meant to represent a very endless number of times that Christians are supposed to forgive one another. And be restored with one another. And Jesus goes on to say in verse 23. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle his accounts with his servants. Now I'm not going to read the whole parable. It's Matthew 18 if you want to read it sometime this week. But I just want to sum it up. The parable is this. That there's a king and he wishes to settle up. And this man comes to him owing him a great debt. One that he cannot repay. And the king has mercy on him and sets him free. Don't worry about it. You don't have to pay it. And the man promptly goes out and finds people who owed him a minuscule amount of debt compared to what he owed the king. And he throttles them and he has them whipped and he has them put into prison. And in that parable, when the king finds out, he pours out his wrath. On that individual because he was forgiven much, but he was not being willing to forgive a very little. And Jesus ends that parable in verse 35 after the man has been put in the jail until he could repay all the debt with this statement. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Dismiss Paul's words if you want to. I don't have to be that forgiving. Dismiss Jesus' words with caution. For he does not give us that opportunity to be dismissive of his teaching. Warren Wearsby put it this way. He said, an unforgiving spirit is the devil's playground. And before long, it becomes the Christian's battleground. Rid yourself of... Bitterness of wrath, of anger, of clander, a clamor of slander, of malice. And instead, be kind to one another. Be tenderhearted and compassionate to one another. Forgiving one another just as you've been forgiven by God through Jesus Christ. There's so much talk today of what the world needs to see from the church. I think that what the world needs to see is the church that Paul expresses here in Ephesians 4. 
people that are willing to put away our sin first, to deal with our ugly first, put away the sin of bitterness and anger and wrath and slander and clamor and malice, the church that becomes kind and becomes tender-hearted and becomes a forgiving church, so much so that the community around it knows it, the church that says these type of words through our actions. We're a family and we're not perfect. We often make mistakes, but we work hard at forgiveness. We work hard at being compassionate. We work hard at being kind. We seek to be the example of the Savior who came and did not retaliate when he was mocked and struck. The Savior who came and when his disciples looked back on the, the towns that had rejected him and said, do you want us to call down fire from heaven on them? Wipe them out. And the Savior who said no. The Savior who actually held his harshest words and judgment in reserve for the religious know-it-alls of his day. Who did not lead people to the kingdom, but in Jesus' own words... He said this, it is bad for you, the teachers of the law, and you proud religious law keepers who pretend to be someone you're not. You would go over land and sea to make one convert, and when you have him, you make him twice as much a child of hell as you are. Kind, tender-hearted, compassionate, forgiving. We can be like Jesus. Or we can be like Chuck Norris, but we can't be both. Who are we going to be? Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pvcfrankfurt at gmail.com.